I have a very big drink because I need it for this. That's good. I have a small drink, but maybe between the two of us we'll be appropriately drunk by the end of this. As we shit on our childhood. Listening to Quarantined Comics. I'm Ryan Joe. And I'm Roman Segel. And this week we're doing a blast from the past. We are going to be reviewing Jim Lee's 1991 run on X-Men. That's essentially X-Men number one through number eleven, I believe. Maybe twelve. Roman will correct me if I'm wrong. And this is actually really special. For me, for both of us, we both grew up reading Jim Lee comics, first at Marvel and then at, at Image. And um, for me, X-Men number four was actually the first comic I remember reading. And that so blows my for, mind. Yeah. It, it, you know, they sold these giant 18 packs of single issue comics at Costco. Oh, yeah. Of course they did. Yeah. And my parents came home with a bunch of them. And I remember there was Guardians of the Galaxy in there and there was Spider-Man. But I distinctly remember X-Men number four as being the story that haunted me. And I would still think about it today. I actually think it's 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 still pretty, pretty good. But is the rest of Jim Lee's arc pretty good? Well, that's what we're going to <laughs> discuss today. Well, okay, before before we begin shitting on our childhood, which, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert, um, it's not very good. <laughs> so that fascinates me, Ryan, that it was your first comic you remember, because at first I, was, I thought you were going to say it was the first X-Men comic you remember, and because my first X-Men comic far predates this. There's so much stuff packed into this. Like, obviously, in the history books, X-Men number one by Jim Lee in 1991 was, I still think is the greatest selling comic book of all time. And a lot of hullabaloo has come out about this book, but I I was reading X-Men before it. And, you know, when I read it, this was the pinnacle of X-Men books, right? The best art, the best story, the most epic storyline. Back then, that's what I thought. But I had read a lot of the other stuff, like Inferno. I'd read a lot of classic X-Men. Like, literally, there's a comic book called Classic X-Men that reprinted the good stuff like Dark Phoenix Saga. You know, at my at my local Winn-Dixie, when I'd go grocery shopping with my mom, I'd just go sit by the magazines and read comics. And one of the first comics she bought me was an Uncanny X-Men from pre- prior to this. But X-Men number four is your first. That's- yeah, you never forget your first. I, mean, I think I probably had read comics like at the library, like Donald Duck comics. I think I read like a Fantastic Four comic. You know, I was nine when this came out. I was nine when I read it. So it really was, you know, I really wasn't that old. And I didn't understand the numbering system. I didn't understand that these stories are serials. I didn't understand that, you know, sometimes they might be referring to something in a book called Uncanny X-Men number 243. And I'd be like, what the hell is that? So this was really kind of my first exposure. and. What I remembered about X-Men number four was that, and I, th- I think this is still true in Jim Lee's run, it's, it's probably the most self-contained of all of the issues from one through 11. You know, it tells 
a bunch of different storylines, but they all kind of come to a conclusion. There's Moira McTarget having a, a breakdown, and then she leaves at the end of this. There's a basketball game where the X-Men agree not to use their powers, and then they, they gradually get frustrated with each other. And basically, at the end, it's a free-for-all. And then there's obviously the the end of the episode where Omega Red, the villain, comes down and just kicks everyone's ass. And all of those elements were actually kind of wrapped up within that one episode. And it also, there was a mystique to it because it was darker than most of the comics had read. No pun intended. No pun intended. There was actually no mystique in it, but there (laughs) was a mystique to it. But, you know, it, it opens with Omega Red using his mutant death factor and killing all of these people. And I had was like, what the fuck? These people are, like, being skeletized by this mutant. I've never seen that before. And then you have this basketball game, which be, should be funny and fun. And instead, the X-Men are just getting angrier and angrier with each other. Like, 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 you, like when you're playing with your siblings and you start to think that your sibling is cheating. And so you cheat a little and they know that you're cheating. And so they cheat a little bit more. And soon you're just like at each other's throats. There's something very true and relatable and down to earth about that. And then Moira McTarget having her nervous breakdown her because of her post-traumatic stress or whatever. That was something I'd never been exposed to. And I was like, why is this woman so hysterical? Why is she just like freaking out of her mind? So all of those elements, they wrapped up, but they were also things that as a young kid, I hadn't really been exposed to. And certainly not in comics. And this is my first time kind of seeing adult themes in comics. And so that's why I remembered it so much. Well, you know, we are going to shit on all of this in a second. But to your point, some of the things were interesting. So, you know, a lot of people talk about how in X-Men, or sorry, Avengers Age of Ultron, that scene where they're all sitting around after the party, and that's one of the great scenes, right? It's just them letting their hair down. And these comics, something Jim Lee did, and, you know, it happened in, in previous Uncanny X-Men, but something it did well, and I think I think Lee was trying, and Claremont were, well, by this point, Claremont was out, but was trying to I think go it was back John, to- was it, was it John Byrne who was helping him out? I don't know. Script? Well, the- I don't know, but what I will tell you is the more I look at Jim Lee's art, the early, you're right, it was John Byrne, his style, you know, we we all thought he was the greatest back then, but his style is super reminiscent of John Byrne, and it never really occurred to me until I started reading Jim Lee as a 30-something adult that there's a lot more Byrne influence. I remember reading like Mm. West Coast Avengers, John Byrne, classic Fantastic Four, John Byrne, back in the day thinking this is as hyper-realistic as comic drawing can be but the only comic artist who got this close to a level of detail i was gonna say (laughs) accuracy of anatomy which is not accurate but you know for the most part his sense of form and depth perception are all relatively accurate when people are sitting down that's how people sit down there is probably far too much posing but anyway reminiscent of john byrne x-men number four the basketball game was great like upon rereading it was one of the things i didn't hate I totally agree with you. I remember John Byrne's run on Superman, actually, which was really, really good. Man and, of Steel. Yeah, was it Man of Steel? Yeah. You know, so yeah. I, I, again, I remember reading the John Byrne Superman. I forgot which titles it was. Yeah, but it was um, the reboot. It was the reboot. And it was much more detailed, much more realistic looking than a lot of the other comics out there. And the other guy I would also mention is Neil Adams, who was uh, famous for Batman. And I think they are contemporaries. And I don't know who Jim Lee's explicit influences are. I'm sure he said it in an interview, but I wouldn't be surprised if those two were the guys who really inspired Jim Lee. And what was also interesting was looking at the work. I mean, Jim Lee is a legend, but there's a lot there that's just absolutely ridiculous. Jim Lee cannot draw feet. And that has (laughs) impacted, like literally 
all of the artists in his generation from like Todd McFarlane to, of course, Rob Liefeld. But it's it's interesting also seeing, not when I kind of look at Todd, Todd McFarlane's art or uh, Rob Liefeld's art, you, I mean, you definitely see that they're, it feels like they're they're aping Jim Lee to almost an, an insane degree. So it's just interesting kind of tracing that trajectory. We presume Neil Adams and um, John Byrne visually to Jim Lee. And then Jim Lee, you've got, you know, Rob Liefeld, J. Scott Campbell, you remember him, um, Todd McFarlane. So Ryan, I want to back up. Why don't we start at the beginning? I think we can talk about each arc from from Magneto to Omega Mojo. Red. To Mojo. And I think they all have things that we liked about it, and they have all the things that we think were, went disastrously wrong. So maybe we just start with Magneto, because he that's how it begins. It, it, it's Chris Claremont, his final kind of contribution to the series. He reintroduces Magneto as a villain, and that essentially kicks off the Jim Lee era. And what, you know, worth noting, again, things I didn't realize till I reread it with my modern sensibility, a lot of people shit on J.J. Abrams. Because what J.J. Abrams does is he shows you all those things you remember loving. It's just this nostalgia factor. And this, these first three issues of, you know, the rebooted, a title list, just X-Men, X-Men number one by Chris Claremont and Jim Lee, it was just repeating the greatest hits. It was a new lineup of X-Men, mm-hmm. new costumes, new design, and more kinetic art style by, by the superstar of the Marvel Universe with, like, the crown jewels of the Marvel Universe. But... There's not much original about this story. And I would it's totally just, agree with that. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. But I will tell you something that I liked about Magneto and that, that I think kind of makes him unique. And this has always kind of been true of Magneto, but it's the inherent conflict in him that I think Chris Claremont really tried to elevate of, you know, he's not really the aggressor here. The X-Men are actually the aggressors. And in the first issue, when they first confront Magneto, it is, to me, the X-Men who are really kind of the villains. Magneto's just trying to, you know, secure some things, secure some nuclear warheads, as you do. But he's not really, he doesn't really have any intentions to devastate the world with them. He just kind of wants to use them to, you know, protect his, his home. And it's the X-Men who actually attack first. It was Cyclops who is kind of a I kind of understand why people hate Cyclops now, having having read this, because he is a doofus, and is Wolverine, and they just kind of go apeshit on him, and that basically starts a chain reaction where Magneto's like, "Oh, f this! You guys are my enemy," um, and I thought that that was unusual because there's there's always been sort of an uneasiness between Professor and X and Magneto. They used to be friends, and et cetera, et cetera. But uh, I give credit to Chris Claremont for bringing that to the forefront, making Magneto almost a reluctant villain. Yeah, and you know, there is a lot of flipping because at some point, half the X-Men team, I don't want to say get, it looks like they get brainwashed and that's kind of what happens. So you have- It's like every episode. Yeah, but you basically have, you know, two teams fighting against each other, you know, friend versus friend, literally Cyclops versus Jean Grey. So- yeah, I guess good on them. I really don't have much positive to say about this. Look, what is memorable? What that those early issues are memorable for, honestly, are the poses. I mean, there's that sort of iconic image of Magneto 
saying, I am Magneto, you are in my home. And, you know, that that image. Oh, like is, page two. Yeah, page two. Yeah, page two. And then, so, I mean, that that is kind of, Jim Lee is almost sort of the quintessential superhero artist just because he's so good with those poses and setting and, characters up, setting multiple characters up in a, in, in a splash page where everyone's kind of posing. I mean, that's... And, and worth noting for this, I had to dig out my original issues and so I got to flip through all the ads and the crass commercialization, like I would see a pose on one page, flip the pages and see, oh, you could buy a t-shirt with that pose on it. <laughs> like Magneto on I the never cover noticed Wolverine. that. Yeah, Wolverine really? and yeah, Wolverine in the sewers, you know, Cyclops blasting on the cover. Yeah. And again, it's every it's like every other page had something pose worthy or pin up worthy. Actually, I'm kind of curious about the just the, the advertisements because you are a reformed advertising man. As you're kind of looking at the advertisements and the relationship with the advertisements to the to the comic. Now that you're an adult, do you have a, a much different perspective? I, yeah, I it's one. It's a very narrow target demographic. So, you know, when my wife and I used to watch the evening news, because we were like the only 20 year olds watching Peter Jennings or whatever, but we would notice, wow, these are ads for old people. <laughs> like, And similarly, when you flip through any one of these issues, you know, on the back is an ad for Game Genie. <laughs> and most of it's kind of garbage ads for just video games or, you know, more Marvel paraphernalia, whether it's Uncanny X-Men trading cards, because this was also the era when Marvel was cashing in and licensing their their IP out. Bottom line is, every advertisement here is geared towards a teenage boy, be it the Game Boy ads, the, the Tiger handheld game ads, the Nintendo Contra ads. There's, there's nothing. There's nothing for any other demographic. When you look at a single issue nowadays, because I know you're, you got the single issues for Hoxpox, which we're going to review in a couple of weeks. Yeah. What were the ads like there? wow, I honestly don't remember. You know, honestly, I think there were less because they've jacked the price up on these books to be less ad supported and more, you know, I mean, these guys make their revenue on the trades. I honestly don't remember because with Hawksbox, uh, which is House of X, Powers of X, which is a more recent reboot of the X universe, I bought all the individual issues with the intent of selling them on eBay so I could buy the trade later, which is exactly what I've done. So the ads didn't leave an impression on me. And now I, I almost have a little bit of a... Uh, reticence for not having those issues anymore let's go back to the jim lee x-men there are certain things that kept coming up and this was actually frustrating to me one of the things i've always liked about the x-men is that they are you know when you think about every each x-men is incredibly powerful except for maybe jubilee and wolverine to be honest every x-men is sort of like nuclear class weapon seriously storm gene gray professor x gambit for god's sake rogue i mean they could just kick the shit out of anything and so the writers are always trying to have to find ways to kick the X-Men's ass because practically speaking, it would be incredibly hard to kick even one X-Men's ass. Except for Jubilee. And so they always do this brainwashing. So you find certain tropes that they use over and over and it gets kind of tired. Like the, the dampeners that take out the telepaths, which Magneto uses and Mojo uses. Um, they always have the brainwashing. That's a constant thing in Mojo's world. Again, in Magneto's world where the X-Men are fighting each other. Of course, the brainwashing never, never holds, but, and, and after a while, you kind of see them repeating the same thing, the same narrative trick. Yeah. Uh, but you know what? Something, something from old school Chris Claremont to many of these issues is 
the X-Men are not always as reliant on their powers. There have been so many things where the X-Men lose their powers. And I'll give you, I have far too much to say about Psylocke. But Psylocke is a hand-trained ninja assassin. And every once in a while she uses her psychic powers. But for the most part, Psylocke's ass-kicking is jumping around in poses and ninja killing people. I just, want to be, I just want to mention about Psylocke. That's key. It's not... It's it's the jumping around in poses. That is why that character exists. She jumps around in poses. I mean, in one scene, she's like she, they're doing a rescue mission on, for Wolverine, and she's like in a bathing suit because she's like the ultimate Asian fetish. One thing I completely forgot about until I reread reread these, and they never did anything with the storyline, the side plot, is Cyclops's fantas fantasization fetishization of Psylocke. Is she's oh, constantly yeah. tempting him throughout these issues. First, just coming out of the pool. Other times when they're, you know, in New Orleans, in the sewers. And by the time Jim Lee left, uh, I read through a few of the other issues. They did nothing with it. Now, what's interesting is we talk about how much we don't like Scott Summer, Cyclops. When we go read the Grant Morrison X-Men, we see a similar thread, but with a different telepath. Yeah, actually, there's a lot of things that Grant Morrison does that's that recalls what happened in Jim Lee's run, but he does it better. What you mentioned is that's one thing. I would also say like the infantilization, occasional infantilization of Wolverine, and then making Beast feral. Those are things that that Jim Lee introduces that Grant Morrison will ten years later do, but execute in a much more interesting way. At their heart, the X Men are all kind of archetypes of themselves so they do have tropes and things that are obvious so there are reasons people like beast there are reasons people love to hate cyclops and it can be done in new and interesting ways or be done in better ways but in fact i don't even think jim lee was the first one to do it when you have a cast as huge as this one you have to paint a lot of the characters in very broad strokes i think gambit and rogue are sort of like the, well actually everyone's kind of the best example of it where where they kind of have one personality trait that is amplified to like the nth degree and that you know makes them memorable it's what helps you differentiate the characters if i mean i guess if the costumes aren't enough and i and also it is what makes the x-men so memorable i mean even as much as gambit is a caricature as he's pepe Le Pew, he's also <laughs> highly memorable because he has that ridiculous caricature accent he has that ridiculous hair he has that ridiculous trench coat that he wears for no reason but all of those trappings, they're really good at just kind of latching into your brain and creating this indelible impression that you remember years later. And of course, as a teenager, when you see Gambit, you don't think, God, you are so ridiculous. Why are you kissing that woman without her permission? You know, you kind of think, oh, that's so cool. I want to be just like him. Again, uh, they, knew their, they knew their audience. Teen boys. This is, this is wish fulfillment. Speaking of the whole teen boy aspect... What did you think of the the Jim Lee pinups, the swimsuit issues? Remember those? Those were like, those were all over the place in the '90s. It feels like, and the image just took it to the next level, where they would basically do the swimsuit. They'd basically have your favorite artist draw the hottest female character in like a bikini, posing for you. And I can't, I just can't see you know, that passing muster today. You're literally just drawing clothing on top of naked bodies. <laughs> and I remember yeah. actually being ashamed of showing some of these to my parents or letting them find out I was reading some of these. Never mind the violence, but I knew back then the objectification that was happening. And, you know, this was these books were coming out in a pre-internet era. And I think in the modern era, 
I, I still think you can probably titillate young boys, but they're not reading these. They're watching video games or playing playing them, and they have the internet. So some of this is like not necessary. And I wonder if that's why the art form has evolved, or it's not just our society that's evolved. It's just the 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 male outlet for these kind of bimbo-esque drawings isn't yeah. as necessary. Well, superheroes are not just the purview of the male teenage id. I'm kind of just thinking about the history of these comics, and it was really the 90s where this started to happen, kind of like the for that decade, the 90s to the 2000s, where superhero comics just became this outlet for the male id. Because before that, I, I think they still felt kind of like mostly you know, for kids, for children, not for teenage boys. I want to shift gears. I'm more aware of this now than I've ever been before. And I was a little Asian boy, a little brown boy in Alabama when I was reading these. And this was an Asian American artist, but he, you know, he's doing what it took to succeed. It's a bunch of white folks. I am. It's even Silo. I didn't really, I didn't really know Silo's backstory, but you know, yes, she she's actually Japanese, but I I just saw a hot white girl. Yeah, for you know, you know her back. You know her backstory is really a, like the she's ultimate demonstration of that Asian fetish because it's like she's originally a white British woman who takes on the body of an Asian woman. So it's almost like she steals an Asian woman's hot body. It's just it's it's. I don't know if they've if the if the, the current incarnation of X Men goes with that origin, but it's really bad. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I put it up there with like the, I mean, not quite the rape of Ms. Marvel bad, but it's up there in terms of like, kind of creeps you out. Yeah, but back then, we didn't care, you know? Look, representation in comics is still pretty terrible. And, you know, the classic all new, all different X-Men were kind of the United Nations X-Men. They had a Canadian, they had a German, they had Storm, she's black. Um, They had Sunfire, he's Japanese, but they were all characters. And they do have Jubilation Lee. But again, like, honestly... I barely knew that she was Asian. Did you know she was Asian as an Asian boy? You know who I thought was Asian? I thought Tony Stark was Asian. Because, (laughs) you know, because... Because he's good at math? Well, (laughs) no, it was the way he was drawn. Okay, so with it, remember when I got X-Men number, I told you I got X-Men number four in this Costco pack. Another issue was Iron Man, who I'd never heard of. And in this issue, he was fighting a character called the Living Laser. And the way they drew... Tony Stark, he looked Asian. In fact, you know who he looked like? He looked like my Uncle Anthony, who kind of had a thin face and had this mustache. He looked like my Uncle Anthony, and that's why I thought Tony Stark was Asian. And I didn't know his last name because I didn't, you know, I didn't know what who these characters were. I just knew him as Iron Man, aka Shellhead. So I didn't actually know Jubilee was Asian. Um, and I didn't actually know Psylocke was Asian either, but I thought Tony Stark was Asian. Yeah. And, you know, another thing, like, they split up the X-Men into Gold Team and Blue Team. Uh, Gold Team's an Uncanny X-Men, Blue Team's in the run we're reading. And there was another Asian guy drawing Uncanny X-Men at the time. Will, I'm going to butcher his name. Will Sportaccio. Sportaccio. He's Filipino, right? Yeah. I believe he's Filipino. Yes. And uh, I don't know. And they introduced Bishop as a character who's black. Storm was on that team. But I just... And again, the X-Men, technically, it is a commentary on race because, you know, they have different powers. They're shunned by society. But I just always found it weird that all the X-Men were white. And I find it more weird now because back then, as a kid, I just assumed only white people could be superheroes. And it rep- this is the power of representation. I'm fine now, but that's a really fucked up thing for a kid to infer by reading these. 
And it kind of upsets me to kind of flip through these pages. You know what's ironic, especially, is that Chris Claremont, you know, in deal in, in writing Magneto, he kind of acknowledged that these X-Men are hated and feared. So he's at least kind of, you know, that's central to mo- Magneto's motivation, and he's acknowledging that. Well, Magneto's Jim a Holocaust Lee, survivor. He's a right. Holocaust survivor. Jim Lee basically just shoves that aside. That's not even when I think of Jim Lee's run after Magneto, they never really talk about that. It's just, you know, it's it's Jim Lee seems to be setting up plot points so quickly it's almost like he's just like tossing an idea out there and seeing what sticks worth noting worth noting actually something that occurred to me is i feel like jim lee was appropriating stan lee's method of sketching out a plot doing the drawings and having someone fill in the words later well you notice that this that the the credits it's often jim lee story scott lobdell or john bird script so i I think you're totally right. And I kind of wonder if that was also happening with Chris Claremont, though Chris Claremont is really, really wordy. Um, Everything is exposition. Oh, God, it's all exposition. And you know what? I can't even see Jim Lee's art because there's word balloons. It's like it's just a giant word balloon. And you know what I've also noticed with Chris Claremont that drove me nuts when he was writing it? Okay, so, you know, you're reading the comic. You go from one panel, then you go to the next panel. But sometimes because of the word balloon, you'd actually have to go back to a previous panel. And it's just, it's just like the most inefficient story. I, I was talking to this one cartoonist, and he kind of made, emphasized, hey, the word balloons, you might not think of them as part of the image, but they're part of the image. It is a graphic design element that points to where you should be reading next. Uh, and Chris Claremont is just like, fuck that shit. I'm just going to put words. It's all going to be, it's going to be I mean, prose. I mean, he might as well have taken a page from Alan Moore's book and just done pages of prose. I mean, Jim Lee, you know, we're buying for the art. Don't clutter up the art. And at least, you know, with, with subsequent art writers, uh, Byrne and, and Lobdell, they are at least, they, they kind of pare it down a little bit. So I, I noticed I could see Jim Lee's art a lot, a lot clearer in, in subsequent episodes. But you I know, think it's definitely, I, go on. No, I was going to say another thing that occurred to me is, Everyone makes fun of the MCU, the current Marvel Cinematic Universe, as being really quippy. These buds making like fun one-liners, Spider-Man style. And the X-Men do that. Uh, There's, uh, I've just flipped to one page, Omega Red being tricked into thinking his death factor is working by Psylocke. And she's like, the truth? That was a figment of your imagination. But just for the record, that piercing sensation in your left lung, that's genuine. She's saying this while she's stabbing him ninja style and there's so many jokes and quips in the middle of a battle yeah and again we, we all kind of like dog on the mcu for that but i think the x-men at jim lee's x-men were doing it first i can't be sure because it's been a while since i've read like the older avengers and stuff like that but that seems like a thing that was a dis- that was distinctly an x-men thing where especially with scott labdell when scott, i remember I, I really started reading x-men you know issue by issue when it was andy kubert and scott labdell was writing and so this is probably around issues 20, I think. Oh, yeah. So that's when I actually really started to get into it. I, I basically missed the Jim Lee era. And I remember Scott Lobdell being very, very quippy. And I remember the other Marvel books, like the Avengers, and remember the West Coast Avengers? Oh, Not yeah. so much. more. There, the, the dialogue was more matter of fact. So I kind of wonder if that quippiness comes from specifically from the X-Men. Don't quote me on that, though. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Something else I wanted to point out about Jim Lee's run on X-Men is how quickly it tosses out story ideas and then discards it. For instance, yes. Bishop shows up and you think, okay, this is going to be about Bishop and Gambit kind of hating each other. And then suddenly they're laughing together because Gambit actually throws a pie in Rogue's face. That is literally what happens. And then, but, and did, then, but, but, did, you, but did you read? So when this came out, Uncanny X-Men, and I was reading Uncanny X-Men at the time as well. 
And I mean, you show Gambit in the future, Bishop and Gambit in the future are talking to each other. So there is, I liked how there was a continuity thread between the two things. I think it actually played well. This is one of those few moments that delivered if you were reading the other issues. I will take your word for it because I did not read that issue of Uncanny X-Men. But I will say that as quickly as Bishop shows up in Jim Lee's X-Men, he's gone and they're off to Louisiana to pursue, you know, to to hang out with Gambit's ex-wife. And the next issue, the villain is the brood. Bishop is totally forgotten. Well, to th- to, um, again, to, to his defense, to Jim Lee's defense, Bishop is on the other X-Men team. He's on Storm's team. And... There's an entire other issue we didn't review because this was a crossover with Ghost Rider. So oh, as soon as it's done, you have to read Ghost Rider number 26, which neither of us have read. I told you I stopped reading Marvel Comics when everything started to be this. Everything's had to be a crossover. And reading this X, reading Jim Lee's X-Men sequentially, basically kind of forgot how many times they would try to get you to read some other completely unrelated book like Ghost Rider in order to get the full arc in X-Men. And I didn't I didn't mind little crossovers like this one. I didn't like the the like the in in X-Men later on I was flipping through these issues they had Executioner song which was like across all five X titles and you had to read them all to get the full story. And I'll pick up a couple extra issues of Ghost Rider if I have to. At least with Executioner song they're all X books so they're all kind of related if you're into Marvel's mutants. Ghost Rider completely different character so it definitely feels to me more like a market well it is a marketing i was gonna say as a marketer i respect it you're cross-selling but i I, you know it it definitely you know kind of looking at jim lee's run in retrospect it definitely feels like they had him i don't know if this was his instructions or not but it feels like they had him just kind of like come up with some ideas that they could use down the line you know, establish Mojo really quickly and what he looks like visually. I don't actually know if Mojo, if that oh, was... Oh, Mojo's a long... Mojo. Stand- oh, my God. Mo- Mojo and... Was Mojo, uh, Mojo and Longshot oh. have been around for a while? Yeah, 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 man. Uh, Longshot was in the X-Men when they went to Australia. So he's a... He's a... The Mojoverse, that's ex- existing stuff. What I would say, I disagree. I think Jim Lee was given the keys to the, keys to the castle, do whatever you want. And what Jim decided to do is every arc is going to focus on one character. It's like the first one had to be the Magneto story. The second one is a Wolverine story. The third one is a Gambit story. The last one is a Longshot story. And honestly, I feel like when I read it as a kid, I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, you're going to leave on a Longshot story? But as I look back, I guarantee Jim Lee just had a passion for Longshot. And he's like, you know what? I want my last story to be a weird-ass, funny Longshot story. So, but but they were character arcs to to his credit. Okay, you know, I I I I, I hear that. I guess I maybe I'm reacting to just the abruptness of some of the introductions and the sudden exits. I mentioned Bishop, Omega Red as well. It's a great introduction, and then at, then the subsequent Omega Red episodes where Wolverine and the X Men are trying to you know take out Omega Red real slog to get through because it's just like one action sequence after the next and it doesn't really it's not really clear how everything kind of ties together the reason omega red hates wolverine really kind of a dumb i won't say dumb just like a very prosaic and boring reason a lot of backstory and exposition so that might just be like a failure of storytelling <laughs> that's your, that that is your incorrect <laughs> assumption my friend what do you mean 
what did you expect? You're like a failure of storytelling. You were, you expect too much from these. I expect a good story. I don't think that's expecting too much. In comics in general, I don't disagree with you. With these comics, upon the critical reread, I knew I was reading fanboy delivery. Of course, what makes a good story when you're 13, in my case, when I was nine, is going to differ a lot when you're like 38 or whatever, or 39. And that's definitely that definitely holds true here. I will say that besides the Omega Red storyline or issue four, and I, I'm still not sure if that's my nostalgia kind of holding on to that. The Longshot, uh, Longshot isn't an interesting character, but Mojo is a very interesting villain. And actually that's oh, yeah, yeah, one yeah. of the issues that that was really kind of fun and playful in, in placing the X-Men into the Wizard of Oz, essentially, and changing their personalities and putting them on this quest. And I thought that worked really well compared to some of the previous episodes, like taking on the Brood, who are just kind of like the villain of the month and then previously with omega red who's just it's just a confusion of, of of villains there at least with mojo he's got personality yeah you know although uh, i really feel like he just wanted to get out of there you know because they jam in we talked about this over text they jam in and each issue and for the long shot issues 10 pages of another story by another artist oh, <laughs> to literally pro- yeah. probably to just reduce jim lee's workload so he could get out of there and head over to Image. There was something else I wanted to bring up also. Oh, yes. The forced kissing fetish. That seems to... It, it happens over and over. And I'm kind of wondering if this is like... It's almost like a Quentin Tarantino feet shot thing. Where some male character will force kiss one of the female characters. Cyclops to Jean Grey. One of the villains to Psylocke. Longshot to Dazzler. And then Gambit tries to do it to Rogue but she punches him first. And so there's four characters who, four female characters who are forced to kiss some dude within a 11 issue arc. And I, I can't help but thinking that that definitely makes a trend. Well, I, I wonder the damage it caused and the expectation, the false expectations it set in a bunch of boys. Like, seriously, I'm surprised I made it out alive. Considering that this is the introduction to a lot of young boys and on how to relate to to women, I think it sets up certain expectations that real human beings would definitely not meet. So right after this, Jim Lee, Jim Lee went to create uh, co-create Image. She started doing Wildcats and all that stuff. You have any thoughts there? Do I think Jim Lee is a good storyteller? No. Do I think he's a good artist? Absolutely. Do I think he's a good storyteller? I think he learned and grew. Like, do I think he's a great designer? Absolutely. Oh, Uh, yeah. Character design, costume design. I mean, it's so... The transition between what you see in these X-Men books and what you see in Wildcats, it's a very seamless transition. I think Jim Lee was the character designer for Gambit. He was drawing Uncanny X-Men when he created Gambit. I believe it was him. But, you know, the... The thing around the face, you know, the mask that doesn't cover up the face, but that covers up every part except for your face. Yeah, I just, it's its a very obvious transition over to Wildcats. And what's great about Wildcats, and what's great about the medium, is after Jim Lee stopped doing Wildcats, he let other writers take the reins on his creation, Alan Moore being one of them. And it holds up. 
you know, the original Wildcats run, it kind of feels like the, this X-Men run that we just went through. But I, I think Jim Lee is a very talented designer and he evolved as a storyteller. To your point about Jim Lee being a really good designer, that's actually true. I, I you know, the X-Men, I guess Dave Cockrum also, his X-Men designs when he did Storm, Cyclops, Nightcrawler, Colossus. One of the things that I don't like about the Grant Morrison run is that everyone's kind of wearing the same uniform. And with... Maybe that was a reflection of the movie, the Brian Singer movie coming out at the same time. With the, with the Jim Lee X-Men, though, there is an individuality to all of the characters. And it's very flashy, almost sort of like their personalities. Like I said, the big... Everyone's essentially a caricature. And that's that actually, I think, is just an asset when you're dealing with such a huge, unwieldy cast of characters. And, you know, that's, that's definitely reflected in the costumes. You get a sense of each personality in the costumes as well, which I think is super cool. And it's hard to do. Absolutely. But, you know, what's interesting about the X-Men, just to take it away from Jim Lee, is all of these characters are interesting on their own. And you have the ability to dive into any one of them and do really interesting things. So to their credit, while there was like a lot of window dressing for all of the X-Men and the famous, you know, the the expected action scenes the the big melees i did really appreciate that we're gonna go deep on one or two characters per book and we'll, we'll tug on a few threads but yeah each of the arcs kind of focus on each character and when you've seen these characters with other artists and with other writers to be specific there's some really interesting stuff that happens with them well, that's why I said I, I kind of felt that Jim Lee was just sort of experimenting and he was kind of teeing up the characters for other people to really explore in the same way that I feel like Marvel was doing for a long time with Warren Ellis. Like he was the way Warren Ellis sort of teed up Moon Knight or Karnak, setting down a couple of interesting ideas, not really following them through, but just setting up through them up through a couple of issues for other writers to explore. It's just a new foundation to help the next creative team. Absolutely. All right. So what are, what actually, what are we reading next week? For the month of September, we want to release X-Men only episodes. And when we started this project, this was literally just Ryan wanting to read the original Jim Lee X-Men and I pushed back on it. Um, but where we met in the middle was there's some really good X-Men stuff in the modern era. And look, we're not going to rehash the Dark Phoenix saga or Days of Future Past in the modern era post Jim Lee. There's some great X-Men books, whether it's Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men run, Grant Morrison's uh, reboot of the X-Men, where he was really setting the X-Men on a multi-year plan, to the more recent Jonathan Hickman, House of X, Powers of X, otherwise known as Hoxpox. So if all you did was watch the cartoon and you get confused when you read the X-Men, these are some really good standalone books you can read. If you have a a base knowledge of these characters, you can really be entertained and, and have your mind bended a little bit. So what's the next X-Men book? I'm guessing it's Grant Morrison's new X-Men, which was 2001-ish. And then Joss Whedon came right after that. Yeah, with Astonishing X-Men in, I think, 03, 05, somewhere like that. And then House of X, Powers of X in the year 2019. And I would just say the time difference, I am so freaking astonished that there's a greater time difference between House of X, Powers of X, and Grant Morrison's run than there is between Grant Morrison's run and Jim Lee's run. I just feel like Grant Morrison's run came out not 20 years ago, but yesterday. So that's how old I am. (laughs) 
This is not a young man's podcast. No, we're too old for this shit. We should be reading real books, Robin. I need pictures and word balloons. Lots and lots of word balloons. Thanks so much for tuning in. And uh, remember, if you have a comic book recommendation, send it to us at qtdcomics at gmail.com. To me, my X-Men. Thank you.